we're only three weeks from Christmas. I mean, can you believe that? It's just, it's just amazing. I don't know about you, but when we start the new year, it's January and then it's June. And then it's December. I mean, it just seems like the, the, uh, the years just evaporate anymore. So they're going so fast. We're three weeks from Christmas. I thought it would be a good thing since we're in the midst of Advent right now to start talking about Christmas, but start talking about Christmas in kind of a typically effect way um, to allow us to come around side and start to look at Christmas from a different perspective and make sure that we understand what Christmas is really all about and what we need to do to be able to see what Christmas is all about. So you got Christmas. When, you know, obviously, it's going to be probably the most familiar holiday, uh, in, certainly in the West, uh, Christmas and Easter. But Christmas has grown to secular proportions, and so it is a huge holiday for us. But with all of that familiarity and everything we, everything we think we know about Christmas, what do we really know? I wanted to take a little sidebar here and just say, you know, Christmas was not a holiday in the early church at all. In fact, in the early church, the church fathers have left, left us evidence of this. They opposed celebrating the birthdays of martyrs because that was a pagan practice, and they were always trying to differentiate themselves from, from um, pagan religions and systems. And so the, the birthday of the martyr was not ever celebrated. The martyrdom day, the death day, which they considered their true birthday, was celebrated. And this applied to Jesus as well. Jesus' birthday was not important. In fact, in the Gospels, you'll find no evidence for what day that was. Now, in Easter, we have it tied to Pentecost, so we know that it was in the spring. But Christmas, we have no idea. How do we end up with December 25th in the first place? Well, it was centuries later. It wasn't until the fourth century that Christmas started to be celebrated at all in the church. And it was tied to the holidays that were already prevalent in, in Rome at the time. And it was uh, Saturnalia and also the winter solstice. So the point at which the sun had been dipping down and getting less and less prominent in the sky, the 21st of December is where it moves back up again. And so that symbolized new life and the return of life. And so Jesus' birthday was put on those holidays uh, because the church was now supplanting the original pagan religions of Rome. But it just starts in the 3rd century, or I should say the 4th century, around 334. But it wasn't until the 9th century that it actually became a liturgical feast within the church. We're talking the 9th century. And it was much later than that that Christmas took the form that it has now. So just to let you know that this holiday, as big as it is for us, was overshadowed greatly by Easter and Good Friday in the early church because those were the ones that were spiritually significant to the church, not so much the birth. But having said that, what do we really know about Jesus' birth that's canonical, that's actually in the, the, uh, the Bible itself? Very, very little. Only Matthew and Luke have anything in terms of a birth narrative. None of the other two Gospels do, and nothing else does within the New Testament. In Matthew 2, we get the story of Bethlehem, the preparation. We also get the story of the Magi. And in Luke, we get the story of the actual birth, which we don't get in Matthew. And we get the story of the shepherds, which we don't get in Matthew either. So our idea of Christmas and everything that happened in Christmas is a combination of Matthew and Luke. It's okay, Sharon. <laughs> we love having her here. Um, 
So let's just take a look at Luke and just see what Luke has to say. We're only going to read the first section up to verse 7. So Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 1, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. And Joseph also went up... Okay, oh, back... From Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So that's all we get. From there, he's going to go on, starting at verse 8 to verse 20, and talk about the shepherds. And, but that's it. Verse 20, he's done. Luke is done. And we're going to read Matthew later. But there's so little, just a few precious paragraphs that give us anything about the birth of Jesus. So what details do we really get? Well, we got that he was wrapped in cloths, right? We got that he was lying in a manger, or they laid him in a manger. And we get that there was no room for him at the inn. Now, these details are critical to any good story. And details in a good story are never random. And the Gospels are so spare. They are so concise. They are so cut down. Each detail that is there is there for a reason. It's there for a purpose. It's not random. And so we need to take a look because it's showing us something that's important for us to understand. If the detail is there at all, if it survived for 2,000 years, there's a reason those details are there. And if you think about it, we live life detail by detail, don't we? I mean, it's really moment by moment and detail by detail. The details are what make something real to us. Details are what we use to prove authenticity, isn't it? I mean, when you're going online and you have to set up an account, what do you got to do? You got to give them all these details that nobody else would know. What was the name of your third grade teacher? What was the name of your first pet? What breakfast cereal do you like to eat when you were a kid? You know, it's all those little tiny details are the ones that really prove authenticity, prove identity. Have you seen a movie where, you know, there's this case of mistaken identity and they have to go to a detail to try to prove that that person is who they say they are? Where did we meet for the second time that we had coffee? And if they know that detail, then it's for true. That's what details do for us. They give us that sense of authenticity, that sense that somebody was actually there, that they know what they're talking about. But there are so few details to work with here. What are those details telling us, those few details that we have? Well, what they're telling us is that Jesus' birth was really ordinary. Jesus' birth was unremarkable. The birth itself was unremarkable and ordinary. It talks about the cloths, the swaddling bands, right? Well, this is what was typically done. When a child was born at, the, at this ancient time, especially to a poor family, they'd take the child, they'd cut the cord, of course, they'd wash the child over, and they'd rub the child with salt. Now, they didn't exactly, I think, understand about bacteria at the time, but they knew that salt worked, and so the child was washed, rubbed with salt, and then was bound really tightly. And for this, they would just use strips of cloth that were kind of laying around, rags, they would wrap him really tightly, or she really tightly, Kind of like a mummy, you know, strips of cloth going around, or like a burrito. I like burrito, baby. That's kind of a good image there. But they would be wrapped very tightly, 
everything about this is very normal treatment for uh, ancient Hebrew birth. Now, this baby was placed in a manger in Uriah in Aramaic. These Uriahs were, they could be made out of stone. They could be made out of mud that was dried and shaped. It could be made out of brick. And they were hollowed out in the middle. And they were just a feeding trough, you know, just to have this thing that stood there with a space to be able to throw in hay and feed and whatever. And they were ubiquitous. They were in every single home. Whether there was a rich home or whether it was a poor home, every house, every home had to have their livestock, had their animals. They had their chickens for eggs, and they had their their uh, goats. They didn't have cattle. Well, sometimes maybe milk. They had their livestock, and they had designated areas for this livestock, and in that designated area would be an uria, would be this manger. So everybody knows what's talking about. And, of course, it's a natural crib. I mean, if you're delivering in this area with the livestock, then the manger is going to be a natural place to put the child, especially if it's already filled with hay, Right. The last detail that we get, again, very normal, right? Unremarkable. The last detail we get is that there no room for there were no room for the family at the inn. Well, inn is a translation of a word uh, in in the Aramaic that is shera. Shera doesn't mean an inn the way we think of an inn, like a Motel Six or Eight, which what now costs two hundred dollars a night. <laughs> At any rate. It's not an inn the way we think of an inn. The closest thing in the first century that, that uh, the Levant had as an inn would be called a khan, K-H-A-N. It would be a transliteration for us from the Aramaic. But a khan was more like a truck stop. They were always located on major travel routes, caravan routes, and they had everything that a truck stop has. They had a place for you to, to uh, stable your animals. They had a place for you to sleep. They had a place for you to get some food, to refresh yourself. And of course, they had brothels and all the other things that every good caravan needed. But they were basically a truck stop. They weren't the kind of inn that we would think of, and certainly not in a town. They would be outside of the town and on these major routes. So what is, talk, what is talked about here is not an inn, it's a shara. Well, what's a shara? Literally, that means a living space. And so a living space in an ancient Jewish home, if the home was very poor, if it was a very poor family, basically they just had one room and they had a dirt floor. There was no flooring on this. But they would have a platform in one corner of the room. That was called the living space. And that was raised, and that was a place where the family ate and slept. The dirt areas was where they cooked and where they kept the livestock. And so the livestock were on the dirt floor. They had their uria, their manger there. And we kept it because you wouldn't want to leave them out, especially when it's cold or where they could get stolen. These were essential to the family's survival. And so they all slept together in, in one room if it was a very poor family. Just... For a moment, imagine the smell. Okay, just just wanted to bring that. You got you got oil burning. You got food cooking. You got the animals doing their thing. Yeah, it's just, it would be a really interesting experience. If the family was more uh, well-to-do, however, then the living space would be on the second floor, and the the area for the livestock would be on the ground floor, of course, and it would be over dirt, and they would have their uria there. But on the second floor would be the living space. This is why Jesus in John four. 14, I forget whatever it was, um, he tells his disciples to go find a person and to book the upper room for them for the Passover meal, the Last Supper. That upper room would be a shedah. It would be a living space. So this is what they're talking about. So what's really going on here in this story? 
most likely, you know, everybody was sort of relatives of everybody else or friends of everybody else. Mary and Joseph make the trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and they go to a friend's house, or they go to one of their relatives' house. But everybody is, is crowding the city at this time. And so the living space, the Shirah, if it was a more well-to-do home, probably, the second floor was already booked. It was already filled up as much as it could be filled. And so there was no place for them in that living space. The only place they could go was with the animals. And so this is what's actually happening here, not like we normally think. But these details are still going to be important for us. But if you think about them, all of them depict a very normal Hebrew birth in the first century for a poor family. It's unremarkable. And it was largely unnoticed at the same time. Now, you're going to say immediately, well, what about the shepherds? Yeah, they, they saw a choir of angels singing. And, and what about the magi? You know, they had a star guiding them. And yes, that's true. In fact, let's read about them right now because we want to compare and contrast. Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, when Herod heard this, you can figure he's going to go paranoid, right? He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, so... The Magi see the star from Babylon, from Persia, far in the east, and they make the trek over. But nobody else in the king's court has seen this. Nobody else in the king's court is aware of this. So gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, Herod inquired of them, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw how the child was with Mary, his mother. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the the Magi left for their country by another way. Now that is the entire birth narrative in Matthew. That's the only details that we get. Okay, I've been telling you that the birth was unremarkable, but wow, huh? We've got choirs of angels singing to shepherds, and now we have the story of the Magi. Anything but unremarkable. But why, again, was this spectacular birth seen by so few, recognized by so few? And what about the relatives? What about the friends with whom Mary and Joseph are staying? You know, they didn't see anything. They didn't notice anything. Nothing is even recorded about them. So therefore, nothing happened that is important for us to know, either in that generation or 2,000 years later. They didn't even make room for Mary and Joseph in the living space, in the Shirah. They saw nothing special in the birth itself. Jesus remarks in John 4, uh, John 4, that the prophet is never honored in his hometown. So there may be some of that, 
They couldn't believe that just Mary and Joseph, they can't produce anything special, right? Who knows? But the point is, they didn't see anything special. Why not? Why did the relatives, why those closest to what was happening not see anything that's going on? Why didn't Herod, why didn't Herod's entire court know anything about this, see anything special? And of course, all they wanted to do was stamp it out and keep their own power, of course. But contrasting to that, why did the shepherds and the magi see so much? Now, you've probably all heard that seeing is believing, right? But the truth is, that we can all see the same thing, even at the same time, and believe different things about it, and even describe the experience differently. That's just the way we're wired. But the flip side of that is a British prophet, prophet, a British poet, got prophet on the brain. He turned that around, and he said, some things have to be believed to be seen. Beliefs, whatever beliefs we hold, our preconceptions, our distractions in life, keep us from being able to see what is right in front of us. Keep us from being able to see the significance of things as they're presenting to us. This whole last month, we've been talking about beginner's mind. We've been talking about the need to be able to strip away all those preconceptions, to come right back down to the mind of a child that can see what's right in front of him and her. As if for the first time, because it is the first time without any bias, without any preconception. This is the real significance of being able to see, because the real significance of things can only be seen by those who are prepared to see it. Not any other way. I mean, think about it. What are you prepared to see? What are you trained for? Okay, Joe, he's a physical therapist. You know, he's trained to be able to see when someone walks in and he knows already maybe something's cockeyed, something needs to be adjusted, something needs to be done here and there. He sees things that the rest of us are just going to walk right past because of what he's trained to do. You know, Tony's a machinist. He's going to see things that the rest of us are going to miss. If you're a woodworker, you're going to walk into a kitchen and you're going to see the cabinets in a whole different way that the rest of us would. If you're an artist, you're going to see art in a way that the rest of us don't see. If you're a sports person, you're going to watch a game in a different way. We see what we are prepared to see, and what we're trained to see is what is really going to rocket out at us. And then we're going to value things that other people don't value. A musician is going to value a performance in a different way because of what he or she sees. Bill is an architect. He's going to walk into a building and he's going to value things and appreciate things that go right over our heads. It's what we're trained to see. So whatever you have trained in, whatever you have prepared for, you're going to see what others will miss. And you're going to value what others don't. Now as a kid, growing up Catholic, I loved the baby Jesus. I love Jesus. And, and it was probably because as a baby at Christmas time, he was so accessible, right? And I had a lot in common with him. He was a kid. I was a kid. And it was great. You know, it was something I could really grab onto. Now, that bleeding man on the cross, not so much. He was distant. He made no sense to me. I didn't understand what in the world that was all about as a kid. 
Now, as I grew older, because you've got to remember, Catholics actually have the body on the cross, not like Protestants, right? So there was this bleeding man on the cross. Well, as I got older, I started to understand. They taught me why I was supposed to love that bleeding man on the cross and what that signified. And so, yes, that started to come to the fore for me. But still, Jesus remained distant as that martyr symbol, as that bloody symbol. And as I got older and I got busier, I sort of fell out of love with Jesus completely. He was no longer relevant to me in what I was doing. I didn't see how he helped me. I didn't see how I had anything in common with him. I wasn't like him, not the way he was taught to me, first of all. And I had all these other things to do, and I didn't see how he could help me get those things done. And so I just sort of fell out of love and was doing my own thing until life mugged me. We all get mugged by life. We get serially mugged by life, right? And everything that I thought I was and everything that I thought I knew suddenly was called into question. Nothing made sense anymore. All the wind was knocked out of me, right? And I felt completely hollowed out. This is what beginner's mind is all about. However it happens to you, whether by intention or catastrophe, to get hollowed out, to call everything into question, to look at everything as if new again, and to realize that there's urgency, that we need to find these, these uh, I'm going to say answers, but they're not really answers as much as they are convictions that will allow us to be able to continue on. And so suddenly, again, Jesus was relevant because now I needed saving. So I had that in common with Jesus, at least. And so I turned back to try to follow. But then my head got in the way. And everything that I thought I knew about Jesus was keeping him still at arm's length. Everything that I thought I knew was keeping me as subject and Jesus as object, and I never really connected, not at a deep level. And so I had to get hollowed out more. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Until I finally was willing to let go of everything that I thought I knew about Jesus. In fact, I had to get to the point that I was willing to leave Jesus and leave Christianity in order for me to finally see Jesus again for the first time, with everything else out of the way, and with that ability to finally see again as if for the first time. I had to return to beginner's mind. I had to return to the mind of a child. And then I could see the significance of the baby in the manger or the bleeding man on the cross. But it took all of that. And it was a difficult experience. If we can do it more by intention, if we can bring that into our daily walk, it doesn't have to be as catastrophic as it was for me. But there's always a combination of the two. It's always great suffering and great love that puts us on the path and motivates us to stay there. But as we look at all the details of Jesus' life, we see that they point to a person who's living on the margins of life. Jesus was never in the center. He was never invested in a status quo. He lived on the margins where poor people do live. Poor, but grateful at the same time. You never hear Jesus complaining. He was grateful even in the most difficult moments. He was vulnerable to the very end. You want to know what the significance of the cross is? It's that vulnerable love that never quits. It goes to the very end, no matter what is happening. That's Jesus. He's unassuming. He's humble. He's wholly dependent on God. 
I don't do anything of my own initiative, he says. Only what the Father does through me. Everything is about the Father. Everything in him points to the Father. And so he's childlike at the same time. All of that is a perfect description of the anavim. And I know we've gone through this before, but it's a Hebrew word that was the ideal of spirituality, the ideal of of a person who is completely connected with God in Hebrew thought. And it was a person who was exactly that, vulnerable, dependent, completely reliant on God because they tried everything else, usually, but grateful at the same time an understanding of the presence and the connection that they had. Now, this was a, a religious ideal, maybe a philosophical and a spiritual ideal in, in Hebrew thought, but culturally, day-to-day, in the culture itself, the Anavim were not honored any more than they are today. I mean, do we really honor those who are poor and unassuming? We're always going to be geared for and gravitating toward the rich and the powerful and the celebrities and the famous. That's what we do. It's what people always do. And so culturally, it was the same way. Even though the religion itself held up the Anavim as the ideal, culturally, these people were marginalized. Culturally, these people were reviled. They were ignored. When Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom, he's not just talking about material wealth. He's talking about whatever it is that endows us. It could be material wealth, it could be finances, but it could also be good looks. It could be intelligence, it could be talent, it could be anything that we use to rely on ourselves, to get where we want to go in life, to move our agenda further forward, and for which other people are attracted to us and move us to advantage. That's the richness that he's talking about. That's the mammon that he's talking about. So the rich and the endowed, and the non-anavim, because of that, because they have something to rely on other than God, they're not going to see the value. They're not going to see the significance of a poor, speechless infant like Jesus. Now, Mary and Joseph were anavim. Think about it. When Mary is called by the angel Gabriel, I mean, she has the usual disclaimers at first, right? But then she falls right into it because she is someone who is so in tune with God and so used to, of course, taking orders. <laughs> but she also, she just, yes, I am the handmaiden of God. And she just assumes the role naturally. How about Joseph? When he finds out that his wife is pregnant out of wedlock during their engagement, and of course, yeah, he has his spin out first. He has his freak out first. But he comes around because of his love for Mary, and he moves with her and protects her. This is the spirit of Anavim. These are people, yes, they were poor and they were marginalized, but they had developed this ability to live with hope and gratitude and with the love and connection that goes with it. The shepherds were Anavim. And we've talked about this before, shepherd consciousness. I mean, what is the life of a shepherd like? hours and hours and days and weeks and months and years alone with your flock in the silence on the hillside going out trying to find more pasture for them to eat all of that silence all of that solitude all of that stillness all of that simplicity those four s's of contemplation that we talk about that's part of their lives and they develop a different way of seeing and hearing a consciousness that sees the significance in the smallest of things 
they were primed and ready to be able to hear the message of the angels. Apparently, in a way that the relatives in the house at which Joseph and Mary were staying were not. Even if they were poor themselves, they were not prepared in their hearts to see what was happening in their very own home. And this brings us to the genius of the Magi. Because the Magi were rich and they were powerful. They were from Babylon or from Persia. And they were priests. They were magistrates. They were astronomers. They were advisors to the king. If you're familiar with Joseph, I'm sorry, if you're familiar with Daniel of the Old Testament, he was one of the Jewish exiles who became an advisor to the king. He was probably the precursor of the Magi. He fit into their group. In fact, it's possible that these Magi are descendants of the Jewish exiles to Babylon. Because not all of them came back. Only a portion of them did. Most of them stayed there and kept their own culture going. So 400 years later, these could be descendants. And that would make perfect sense because they're still thinking along their Hebraic lines. They're still looking for the fulfillment of the scriptures that they knew so well. So they, even because, even despite, I should say, their wealth and their status and their education, they're still humble. They're still vulnerable. They're still dependent. They're still childlike. They're willing to take risks. They're willing to risk being wrong. They think they've interpreted the heavens correctly. They think they understand what they're seeing. But they're willing to look ridiculous by setting off across a long and perilous journey across the Parthian frontier between Rome and Parthia and Persia, which was dangerous, to make that trip all the way to the Levant to to see what is actually there, put themselves in harm way. They had the heart and the spirit of the Anavim, even though they were rich, even though that they were powerful. Because only those who are prepared, whether they are rich or poor, can see the significance of an Anavim child and an Anavim man who Jesus would become. Now, 12,000, 12,000 years later, that would be a while. 1,200 years later, there's another man living in the midst of his wealthy family, in the midst of a very wealthy church by now. In 1,200, the church was very wealthy. In 1,200, the church controlled the kings of Europe. It was a whole different beast by then. In the midst of all of that wealth and all of that power, Francis of Assisi has his life hollowed out by a series of events, going to war, being a prisoner of war, becoming ill, and he finds his Anavim heart. He finds his Anavim spirit. He renounces his family's wealth, and he just commits himself to live in poverty. And because of who he was and the strength of his character and his charisma, he started to gather people around him who saw something in him that was attracting them as well. And this was the beginning, of course, of the Franciscan order. And he worked to reform the church from the inside out to see if if he could repair the church as his vision instructed him to do, to see if the church could return to those Anavim ideals. And of course it didn't, but he was able within his own order to try to establish that, to live in poverty, to see things from a different point of view. At one point, he wanted to immerse himself in the experience of the Magi and the experience of that birth and that that time that the Magi and the shepherds were transported. So in 1223, 
he petitioned the Pope, and he got permission to be able to do the first nativity scene. You know, the first one that has ever been seen was in the village of Greccio. Greccio, if I can say that right, in, in Italy. And it wasn't just a nativity scene as we think of it. It was actually a nativity play. It was a nativity service. And there was a full-size stable, and there was a full-size manger, and there were animals that were full-sized as well. And they actually ran through the entire thing, you know, played it out as it is depicted in the Gospels. And I wanted to read a first-hand experience so you can get a little bit more into what it might have been like, the experience of seeing this first manger scene uh, with Francis. And this comes from Thomas of Solano, who was one of Francis's personal friends. And so he was there, eyewitness account. It may be, you know, exaggerated a bit, but I'll let you be the judge of that. Francis would recall Christ's word through persistent meditation and bring to mind his deeds through the most penetrating consideration. The humility of the incarnation, the charity of the passion, occupied his memory particularly to the extent that he wanted to think of hardly anything else. The day of Christmas drew near. The time of great rejoicing came. The brothers were called from their various places. Men and women of that neighborhood prepared with glad hearts, according to their means, candles and torches to light up the night. The manger was prepared. The hay had been bought. The ox and ass were led in. There, simplicity was honored. Poverty was exalted. Humility was commended. And Grezio was made, as it were, a new Bethlehem. The night was lighted up like the day and it delighted men and beasts. The people came and were filled with new joy over the new mystery. The woods rang with the voices of the crowd and the rocks made answers to their jubilation. The brothers sang, paying their debt of praise to the Lord, and the whole night resounded with their rejoicing. When Francis came, finding all things prepared, he saw it and was glad. He is dressed in the vestments of the deacon, and with full voice sings the Holy Gospel, a powerful voice, a pleasant voice, a clear voice, a musical voice, inviting all to the highest of gifts. Then he preaches to the people, standing around him and pours forth sweet honey about the birth of the poor king and the poor city of Bethlehem. Moreover, burning with excessive love, he calls Christ the babe from Bethlehem, saying the word Bethlehem in the manner of a bleeding sheep, Imagine that, Bethlehem, Bethlehem. That is that is so Francis. He called himself the jongleur de Dieu. I don't know if my French pronunciation, forget. It means God's juggler, God's clown. He would stand on his head in order to see the world from a different perspective. He was just that kind of guy. He was always doing something that was outrageous. It's why he was the one who talked to the animals and they would come and perch on him the way he's always depicted. This was who he was, Bethlehem. He fills his mouth with sound, but even more with sweet affection. He seems to lick his lips whenever he uses the expressions Jesus or babe from Bethlehem, tasting the word on his palate and savoring the sweetness of the word. Francis stands before the manger, filled with heartfelt sighs, and overcome with wondrous joy. Now, don't you love those details? Ah, that, I, that image of him licking his lips as if tasting the words that he's saying about Jesus and the babe from Bethlehem. Francis is obviously in complete immersion 
He is there and nowhere else, completely present, completely aware, not thinking anymore, just being and doing everything. He's a complete reflection of God's love, especially in the playfulness that he exhibits, the humor, the humility, the in-loveness that he was showing at this moment. Obviously lost in a sensory overload, right? Now, that may not sound like a big deal to us with all we've got at our disposal, but in those days, that was sensory overload. The power of that moment that they had created brought to tears by recognizing the significance of this baby at this moment. Now, we get no such details of the Magi and what they went through as they finally approached and were able to be in the presence of the Holy Family. But can you imagine maybe it was something of the same? After that journey they took, after a lifetime of studying the stars and finally seeing the signs that led them to take the risk that they took to show up where they were, you can imagine what their emotions must have been, the height of what they were experiencing. So what about us? What's our reaction to Christmas? What's our reaction to these symbols that we continue to place in our midst every year? Can we recognize Jesus in our lives? Because if we leave it just as an event that happened 2,000 years ago, we're going to miss everything about the significance of what this is all about. I want to read another piece, and this comes from another Franciscan, but this is a, a woman, a nun in the Franciscan order, and she writes, the story of the Incarnation is really our story. It is the exact meeting point of God and human beings. We so often think of God as some kind of remote power or superhuman energy that has somehow set this whole creation thing going and then stepped back to see what would happen. It's impossible for God to step back from anything God has chosen to be involved with. At the very moment, the very first moment of creation, God freely decided to get involved with you and me and with all created being. Absolutely everything God does, God does with free, unconditional, absolute, and irrevocable love. This is very hard for us to understand and accept because we, of ourselves, do not naturally love this way. Yet every Christmas, we celebrate that God came among us as one of us so we could love like God and be like God and share God's own life forever. That word, Emmanuel, that is used for Jesus, simply meaning God with us, is the expression of that. What she's trying to say, bringing God into the world as one of us. Francis of Assisi was profoundly moved as he contemplated God's coming among us as a human being in Jesus Christ. This reality filled him with awe. He understood that we human beings are essentially poor, that of ourselves we actually are nothing. Everything we are and have been has been given to us by God in love. We are totally dependent on the God who lovingly and freely created us and holds us in being. When Francis talked about poverty, this is what he was talking about. The recognition of what we are before God. When he thought about this little newborn baby lying in utterly poor circumstances, son of an equally poor mother, it moved Francis to tears. That this little human being 
could be a full manifestation of the God of all creation astounded him and wakened him and wakened in him the most ardent and grateful love. It made him want to laugh and sing and shout and weep, so that is exactly what he did. Francis was a man who really expressed his emotions. For him, the Gospels came alive and were made present in highly charged dramatic action. Word and deed were as one. To know the story was to become a participant in it, to play a role in it, to live it in such a way that its power became irresistible to others. And so it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, if you think about it. The Father's love changes us, but we need to be changed enough to see the Father's love. See how that works? We need to be opened up, hollowed out, present enough to see what is going to change us. Or at least we need to be willing to be immersed in our moments, like the Magi, like Francis, willing to be wrong, willing to look ridiculous, willing to admit the limits of our knowledge, the limits of our power, the limits of our ability to even understand or make meaning out of things, to suspend what we think we know, and to let go of that illusion of power, to let go of what we think our security is all about in order to experience something completely different. In other words, we must be enough like God, that Anavim heart, in order to see and recognize God in our presence, in everything and everyone around us, especially from where we don't expect God to be. Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the Magi and Francis, they all could do this. They did do this. And their common traits were the humility and the childlike purity of heart that they exhibited. They had a willingness to set off without a destination actually in mind, with no guarantee of success or reaching that destination. And just to follow real-time directions, they were able to do that. Kind of like when you punch in your, your destination on your phone, and then you make a wrong turn, and it says, recalculating, recalculating. The Magi were willing to do this. The shepherds are willing to do this. Are we willing to do this in faith and in trust? The ability to immerse in relationships and to be present right now with absolute abandon. That's what it takes to see God in our midst. That's what it takes to recognize Emmanuel. The Magi set out to find a king, a priest, and a prophet, but they found this poor, speechless child instead. The promise of their star that they had so long searched for and awaited was still unformed and unrecognizable in that child. But their Anavim hearts allowed them to see beyond their own expectations, and they were able to surrender and trust what their hearts were telling them was true. When we set out to find our God, we are also presented with an unformed child here at Christmas, but also in every way. We look for answers, but our questions are never fully answered. The certainty we crave for is never there in the way that we want it to be. But Christmas is the promise of our star, still informed. And if we are anavim enough, if we have come to ground zero enough, then we can still see how this is still a step forward toward our star's promise. 
Because our God is unassuming. Our God is humble. Our God is vulnerable. Our God is one who will wash our feet, which blows our minds. Are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for that? Or will we continue on searching for the God we expect to see? Are we anavim enough to be able to stop at the manger and see what the shepherds and the magi saw? Because we will never see God in our moments until we are enough like him, valuing and loving as he does. That's the key. One last thing I wanted to read is a journal entry of mine from a few years ago. And it just struck me. But uh, take a listen and see what you think. A week before Christmas, waiting in December darkness at a stoplight, I have a front row seat at the crosswalk. Through the passenger window, I catch what must be a father and a daughter beginning their walk across the intersection. Moving very slowly, I wonder if they'll get across in time. Both carry cardboard coffee cups in their right hands. But while his free arm swings with each step, I notice hers held stiffly bent against her side. She appears 11 or 12 years old as I collect details. Left hand curled cruelly back at the wrist. Left foot turned sharply inward and the limping shuffle it creates. Thick glasses and puffy features. It dawns why they move so slowly across my glass screen. Father matches her pace with practiced grace. Unhurried, vaguely protective, but not hovering either. They went to Starbucks. He bought her coffee, or more likely hot chocolate, amid all those lights and decorations in the store. I wonder how it all appeared to her through those thick glasses. How she must have smiled looking around, up at him, back around. I wondered how it all appeared to him, being forced to walk so slowly to match that shuffling pace for 11 or 12 years, for the rest of her life, or the rest of his perhaps to learn to see life as his daughter saw it, would always see it. When he realized he couldn't change her, had she changed him? The hot chocolate and the unhurried, unself-conscious walk in front of all those windshields implied so much. Christmas has a way of bringing vague, submerged feelings to the surface, the way hook and line bring up fish. We find ourselves suddenly grasping, squirming emotions that should have nothing to do with Christmas, with what we think Christmas is supposed to mean, what we remember it used to mean. You see, we imprint the meaning of Christmas through a child's eyes, then subtly mourn its loss each year through adult eyes. Christmas hasn't changed. The possibility of Christmas returns every December. We have changed. We've lost the pace of childhood. I'm thinking maybe Christmas as remembered happens exactly when we stop trying to make it happen. When we stop running faster and faster trying to catch the stored experience of Christmas, maybe meaning finally has a chance to catch up and catch us. I can't choose the pace of life around me any more than I can alter the course of a storm. But maybe I can choose my own pace within it. Maybe I can allow myself to shuffle slowly through the crosswalk with a warm cardboard cup in my hand, 
and the sense of a patient father at my side. You see, I have a father who can see past the unformed parts of my life, recognize my beauty in spite of myself, and teaching me with unfailing love to see and do the same wherever I look. And so do you. You have the same father. Of course we will always find our God as a child. How else? Unformed and always forming. Why expect any other form from a humble, unassuming God? And every time we meet our God, it is Christmas morning. And the babe is in the manger. And the star is in the east. And we are the magi and the babe at the same time. Let's pray. Father, this Christmas, we want to be prepared in a way that maybe we haven't been for years or ever since childhood. Help us to prepare. Help us to take the steps necessary to intentionally let go of the things that keep you at arm's length, that keep us thinking about things, but never really immersing into them. Help us to simply let go and to simplify, to take time to see what is really right in front of us. So on Christmas Day, we can see who you really are in that story that we know so well, but in the faces and the connections that are all around us all the time. Thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for the preservation of the liturgy in our church that has kept it for us, but help us to see it new and fresh so that it means something that we can't deny. Thank you, Father, for all of this, for your love and your constancy. And never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.